And, you know, can we be honest? That does seem to be the way our culture feels about it often. In fact, uh, as I look at our culture, it seems that people want to deny death and want to, if they have to talk about it, they want to use different words, right? Instead of using the word death, we come up with all kinds of other words. We say, they've passed on. They've passed. They've gone to a better place. They've gone on ahead of us. They've kicked the bucket. <laughs> They're pushing up daisies. They're swimming with the fishes. And on and on, these euphemisms go. We use all these words and phrases instead of talking directly about death. But in this series, I, I think it's good because we've tackled this subject kind of head on. And we said, look, it's a reality of life. I call it the ultimate statistic. One out of every one person's dies. And another thing that some of you will never forget is that spray bottle, right? You saw it in the video today. I used it in the first week on Easter weekend. And the Bible says in James 4.14 that this life is like a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. So you're thankful for something. You're thankful from now on every time you see a spray bottle you'll know your life is almost over, right? <laughs> you'll be reminded of how incredibly brief life really is. I did something this week I, I've never done. I had heard about a particular website, but I, I finally clicked on it this week. I went, have you seen that website called The Death Clock? I mean, you've got to check this out. It's kind of a cool website. You go on and you just put in some of your personal information on there and it kind of tabulates it for you and it tells you the day you're going to die, right? Is that cool or what, all right? So I went in and I, I put my height and my weight. It even has things like, you know, whether you're optimistic or pessimistic and, and uh, you, you crunch all these numbers into there. It's not, it's not very long. And then it, it spit out the day I'm going to die. So I want to announce it for you. The day I'm going to die is October the 19th, 2045, okay? So that's, that's my date for death. But I played around with it a little bit and, and noticed that even just, you know, changing between being an optimist to a pessimist reduced my lifespan by about 12 years. So it's, it's really a, a little bit fickle. But while that, that website is kind of cool and and by the way, it, it actually gives you the number of seconds you've got left. It, the death clock literally counts down the seconds you've got left to live. And so right now, it says I have well over a billion seconds left. Can we be honest? You know the problem with that website? There's no guarantee, right? I may have well over a billion seconds, or I may have one second. We just don't know. So as we wrap up today, I want to ask you, I want to encourage you to live life with one big question in mind. Here's the question I want you to ask today. Am I living life with the end in mind? Am I living life with an eternal perspective? Now, there's a Bible passage that I think can help us with this today. 
and it's found in the little book of 2 Timothy in the New Testament. If you have a Bible of your own, I would ask you to turn there and find that. We're also going to look at it on the screens, and it's in your notes as well, if you'd like to jot some ideas down. And here's the statement that Paul makes. Now, before we actually read it, I want you to know the background. This is the last letter Paul ever wrote. So, in other words, he was accurate when he says, hey, the time for my departure is at hand. I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. All those things. He's absolutely right. In fact, the historian Eusebius, who wrote about the history of the church, says that it was shortly after this that the Apostle Paul was actually beheaded by the Roman Emperor Nero. So Paul is not just you know, speculating here. He really understands that the end of his life is near. But what I want us to catch today is the perspective he has. And here's where we've really got something to learn. See, Paul not only lived with an eternal perspective, but because he lived that way, he was actually ready to die and was literally, I think it's not a stretch to say, he was almost celebrating knowing that the finish line was very near. Look at what he said here in 2 Timothy chapter 4. For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Now what I want to do with the remainder of our time is just highlight about four of the key phrases that Paul uses there. We could spend a lot more time on it. I just want to pull out about four of the phrases which I think can really be helpful for us if we're going to ask that question, am I living with the end in mind? Am I living this very day with an eternal perspective? The first phrase is in verse 6. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. Now, that probably doesn't mean too much to us because we're not familiar with the Old Testament sacrificial system, right? But Paul uh, was extremely familiar with it. And there were all kinds of offerings in this Old Testament system, and the least of the offerings was the drink offering. So in saying this, it's really a statement of humility. Paul is saying, I, I may not be the most important, I may not be the grandest, but I'm at least a drink offering, and my life is being poured out. It's being given on the altar. And by the way, when they took that chalice of wine, those Old Testament priests, and poured it out on the altar, the altar was hot. And when that wine out of the chalice hit the altar, a, a steam came up, a mist came up from that. What a fitting picture that is. And a sweet savor, a sm sweet smell came up from that. And Paul said, that's what my life is like. It's been poured out for Christ. Now, here's the truth of the matter. It's not just Paul whose life is being poured out. You see, the truth is every one of us is pouring out our life for something, aren't we? We're investing it in something. And, and I would be curious today what that something is for you. One of the jobs I have as a pastor 
is periodically, of course, I'm called on to officiate funerals. Funerals are an important, important moment in the life of a family. When a loved one has died and there's all this grief and a funeral is a time for us not only to say goodbye to a loved one, it's a time for us to help deal with our grief. Funerals at their best are very good. They're a wonderful part of that process. But you see, here's the thing. Often, I'm asked to officiate a funeral for someone I don't know. In fact, you believe it or not, often people I've never met. So I've never even had a conversation with this person on many occasions. And so I like to personalize funerals, right? I don't want to get up there and just read a generic thing that I read at every funeral. No, I, I want this to be personal for the family. I, I want to talk about the individual. So what I do is I sit down with the family. I ask for several family members to come, those who are closest to this person, and tell me about him or her. And so we sit down in a little room in uh, one of our church facilities, and we, we sit there, and I just kind of interview the family. And I, I start with trivial things like what were the hobbies and idiosyncrasies and personality traits and things like that. But I move on to more serious things like what was their faith like? What was their belief system? Kind of their worldview. And, and here's the question I really like. I look at these family members, and I say, okay, what was his or her passion. Can you tell me what he or she was really living for? What was their life really all? You knew them better than anybody else. Uh, would you please sum up for me? I didn't know them. Sum up for me. What was their life really about? Here's, here's what it often sounds like. Now, we've already covered all the trivial stuff. Here's what, it, what, what was their passion? What was life really about for them? Oh, he loves sports. I want you to know... Man, he was a faithful fan of his team. And I said, oh, that's great. You know, I love sports too. That's wonderful. I think it's cool to have something like that. Okay, what else can you tell me? Well, he never missed a game. I'll tell you that. He had season tickets, and uh, he just refused to miss a game. I said, you know what? It's great to be loyal to your team, isn't it? Now, that's awesome. Okay, tell me something else. What, what else can you tell me that was really the core of his life? Well, it was all about the Yankees for him, baby. Let me tell you. I mean, it was all about the New York Yankees. And if the Yankees lost, I mean, he would be depressed for days. I mean, this guy was just a sports fan. That's how it often goes. Or it goes like this. Oh, she was really into interior design. I mean, she just had a gift for this. Oh, a gift, really? It was just... It was more than an axe. She really had a gift. I, oh, yeah. Well, what, what else can you tell me about her? I say, well, she, she was really into decorating. I mean, it's like she was Miss, you know, home and garden. I mean, she looked at that house, and she didn't just fix it up. She kept fixing it up. And she never was really sad. I said, well, what else can you well, let me tell you, she was always buying stuff for the house. She was just never perfect enough for her. It was all about decorating for her. His life was all about golf. I want to tell you, he wasn't very good, actually, but he golfed all the time. Yeah, member of the country club, been a member for 40 years. 
oh man, he, just, he played on every big course he could, and he just loved golf, read about it all the time, watched it on TV. I don't know how he could stand that boring stuff, but he, it was just, he was a golfer. That was his life. All about the romance novels. I'm telling you, she had a bookcase full of romance novels. She bought them. She'd take four or five on vacation with her, read them. Then she'd reread them. I mean, it was, she had them by her bed. She just loved romance novels. And then one family said, you know, life for her was all about American Idol. I want to tell you, she would watch that, never missed it, mind you, never missed it every year. She just set everything else aside, and she gave that Simon Cow what's for, man. She told him to let up on those contestants. Now, I, I want to be kind, and I want to be fair, but I've just had so many of those interviews by now, and I've already troubled, covered all the trivia and I get to faith, and I say, now tell me, what is the center of his or her life? What was their passion? And can I be honest? Sometimes I just sit there, and I think, a lifetime lived on this earth, and the most profound thing we can talk about is American Idol? Really? So I've gotten convicted. And I've asked myself, what would my family say about me? And so I want you to do a little experiment here with me. At all of our locations, I want to ask you for just a minute, if you would hear, this won't be long, so, so you, you can rest at ease. I want you to close your eyes, though, for just a moment. Don't go to sleep now. We'll wake you back up in just a moment if you do. Just close your eyes for a moment. And I want to ask you, if you were in that scenario, and I'm sitting there with your closest family members, what would they say about you? Now, here's who's there. If you're married, your spouse is alive, your spouse is there, okay? Also, you've got there some family member, not your spouse, who knew you very well. Also, you've got there a co-worker, someone that you really related to at work or at school, if, that's, if you're a student, okay? And you also had someone who's been like a lifelong friend, someone who's been a friend a long time, maybe a neighbor, maybe someone you went to school with. All right, they're sitting there in those chairs in that little room, and I'm asking them these same questions. And I come to that question, what was her life about? What was his life about? What would your family and friends say about you? Now, I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty. No, 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 no. Kick guilt out the door. I want to know. What would they say your number one passion is in life? Because hear, hear me, before we open our eyes, hear me. Whatever they would say about you, the people who really know you best, is probably what you're pouring your life out for. Paul said, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. What are you pouring your life out for? What are you giving this one and only life for? What are you investing it in? That is a critical question if we're going to live with the end in mind, with an eternal perspective. All right, so you can open your eyes. All right? Now, a second statement he makes here is the time has come for my departure. Now, that's very interesting. Paul knows his life is nearing its end, but he doesn't say, it's time for me to start pushing up daisies. 
He doesn't say it's time for me to kick the bucket. It's time for me, you know, to go swim with the fishes. He uses an interesting word. It's a nautical word. The time has come for my departure. Would you circle or note that word departure? Very, very interesting. It means literally to set sail. Are you catching this? Paul is saying, look, I know the end of my life on this planet is near, but it's not really the end. When he talks about death, it's not morbid. There's no sense of dread in that. In fact, there's an incredible sense of anticipation. He says the time has come for a brand new journey to begin. Wow. That is incredibly powerful. That's what you would call living with an eternal perspective. Now, why could he say that? Well, one of the reasons that Paul could say that is because he had settled what his life was all about. And if you ask him that question, uh, he would say it like this in Philippians 1.21. Look at what he wrote there. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Famous statement of Paul. Boy, that's a great, great slogan for life, isn't it? Isn't that a great motto for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain? So let, let me ask you again. What would you put there? Let's keep that verse up there for just a moment. What would you put there if you were filling it in? For to me, to live is fame, and to die is to be forgotten. For to me, to live is family, and to die is to leave them alone. What would you put? Would you put, for me, to live is money, and to die is to leave it all behind. For to me, to live is pleasure. And to die is to miss out on all the fun. For to me, to live is power and influence. And to die is to be insignificant. You see, the reason Paul could celebrate even early here as the finish line was in view is he'd already settled what his life was about. And while he knew his time for his departure was near, he had it all in perspective. You know what is incredibly tragic? When first-class people give first-class allegiance to second-class causes. When first-class people give first-class allegiance to second-class causes. I want you to imagine it like this. Imagine you're going on vacation for a week in the Adirondacks, and you've looked online and found a cabin that looks gorgeous with an amazing view of the mountains. And so you book it. You get there, you're going to be there for a week, but boy, it is a letdown. Wallpaper peeling, paint coming off the walls, gross, grungy carpet. The <laughs> jacuzzi out on the back deck that overlooks that gorgeous mountain view it's got stuff in it. Man, you don't even know what it is, what's growing in there. It's unbelievable. It is a wreck. Mattress lump, uh, uh, just it goes on and on. A popcorn ceiling in the place, back countertops from the 70s, grungy cabinets. And you say, I know what I'm going to do. I, I'm going to fix this place up. And so you do. And you start contracting people to come in. And they come in and rip the carpet out. 
And then they take that, that old popcorn ceiling away and begin to replace all these things. They steam the wallpaper off the wall. It's so gross. They replace all that. And then you go into your bank account deep when you take out the carpet and you put down some beautiful hardwood mahogany floors in this place. You kind of have them spruce up the deck out back. They bring in a huge jacuzzi. They'll seat a dozen people overlooking this gorgeous mountain view. You bring in new beds with pillow top mattresses. It's unbelievable. And then by day five, you've already depleted all your bank account. And so you go into debt to get the flat screen TVs that you're going to bring in. And you spend your whole week stressing out, working on this, getting this place fixed up. And you lay your head down on the pillow on that sixth night. And your pillow top mattress feels so good. And you say, oh, this is worth it all. And you wake up the next morning to the phone ringing. You answer and say, hello, the rental company says, this is just a reminder, your checkout time is 10 o'clock. And that's our lives. We spend all our times running around, spending first-class energy and allegiance on second-class causes. And we get the call, the time for your departure is near. And we go, wow, I kind of missed it here. Why did I spend all this? Why didn't I focus in a different way? Are you living with an eternal perspective? But Paul goes on with the third statement I want us to focus on, and that is, I have fought the good fight. Now, the word used there for fight is the word for we get agony from. He's basically saying, I have agonized the great agony. And, and don't get the idea that Paul was a pessimist or that he saw life as this plague. No, Paul was the one who said, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. He had a positive outlook. Paul is the one who said, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Paul is the one who said, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That was his basic perspective on life. But Paul knew what it was like to suffer, and he knew that life could deal out some pain. So his view of life was, it's a fight down here. We're fighting, we're battling against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Once in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he outlines some of the hardships he had been through. He said, I've worked much harder, been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. And he goes on and on with all of these trials that he's been through. He knew what it was like to suffer. But look at the perspective that Paul had about suffering in this life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, we're aging, we're getting older. All you got to do is look in the mirror to verify that. Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory which far outweighs it all. It's far beyond all comparison, he says. 
In other words, if you stack up the trials I've been through down here compared to what heaven is going to be like, there's like no comparison, man. Well, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, some of you are going through some tough times right now. Maybe you can identify with Paul and you say, wow, momentary light afflictions, this feels a little tougher than that. I just got a bad report from the doctor. I just had a family member kind of turn their back on me. I, my finances are in a shambles. My health is failing. My future doesn't look bright. Pastor, what are you talking about? Life is no, life is no cakewalk. No, it's not. But if you have this kind of perspective, that what is awaiting you in heaven far outweighs all of it, it helps you keep it in that eternal perspective, right? I've been noticing the last couple of weeks that around the capital region, I've been seeing people out on the sides of major roads. In fact, right outside of our Latham campus facility, uh, I've been seeing people holding signs. And over in Greenbush, people have been holding signs. And I, I was so intrigued by the people holding the signs, I didn't even read the signs. Because most of the people holding the signs look totally miserable. I saw one guy, he was standing like this one day, literally just bent over like he was about to drop, but holding the sign up. Through rain, through sun, through cold, it doesn't matter. They're standing out there holding those signs. I found out since then, somebody told me, oh, they're advertising Kmart going out of business. So they're holding these signs up for a going out of business sale, right? So I, I, I had some members of our team snap some pictures of these guys. And here they are. Now, here's one guy. He looks a little bit down and depressed. And this guy looks a little more excited. Now, I want you to use these guys as an example. And I don't know their story. But let's imagine that it's not a going out of business sale. Let's imagine that you've got people here who are advertising a brand new business starting. And let's say that they were contracted for an entire year to stand out there and hold a sign. One of them contracts to do that and the deal is they're going to get paid in one lump sum at the end of the year and this guy is paid to do that for an entire year for $23,000 that's going to be his pay at the end of the year $23,000 and this guy is going to get paid $23 million lump sum at the end of the year you got to hold the sign every day 365 days that's your job miserable job standing there all day long holding the sign but that's your reward at the end. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think it would make any difference in how you held the sign, knowing what's coming? I don't know. But I would suggest to you that the guy who did it for 23000 every day would be drudgery. He'd be fighting bitterness. He would be down. His attitude would be in the pits. But I would imagine that the guy who contracted for $23 million, he'd be dancing. He'd have his headphones on. He'd be breakdancing out there, singing to everybody, singing the happy song. Like a room without a roof, man. His future is bright. It's expansive. And the only difference, everything's the same. The only difference is what they believe awaits them.
Paul was incredibly excited because he'd seen a glimpse of heaven and he said he saw inexpressible things that it's not even permitted for a man to tell. And the final phrase I want us to look at briefly is, I finished the race. Now, Paul could say that because he was finishing very strong. But can we agree on something? Not everybody finishes strong. One of my goals in life is that I would finish this race well. But believe me, not everybody does. For instance, Paul mentions in the same context a guy named Demas. Look at the next couple of verses here. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Now, we don't know a lot about Demas. We know that the first time he shows up is in the little book of Philemon. Look at these verses, what Paul says there. He says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Lucas. Whoa, Demas there is listed as a fellow worker. He's engaged in the ministry. He's active. He's on the front lines. He's with it. He's living life with an internal perspective, and he's holding the sign well. But then we hear, read about him in Colossians 4.14. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Here, he's not referred to as a worker, he's not engaged, he's just merely sending greetings. And then when we get to this last letter that Paul wrote, 2 Timothy, as we saw, he says, he's deserted me. He's deserted me. And I don't want to read more into this than is really there, but it seems that Demas here is running an entirely different kind of race. It seems here that he's been distracted, to say the least, and something has gone really, really sideways in his life. And some of you know what that feels like, right? Maybe you started strong. Maybe there was a time in your life when you loved Christ passionately, but something has happened. Your career took off, and, and it kind of began to replace God in your life. Or maybe circumstances came up in life and, and, and God got edged out of the picture. What I want you to know today, it's not too late to turn that around. It's not too late to finish well. It's interesting to me that Paul mentions another person in the same context and his name is Mark. Would you look at this passage? Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me. In my ministry. Now, while Demas started strong and faded out, Mark started weak and eventually became strong. Mark, by the way, is the one often called John Mark in the New Testament, and he went with Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary journey. He was a cousin of Barnabas, and we don't know what happened, but somewhere when the trip got really rough, Mark wimped out. Mark, we don't know if he was physically sick, homesick, had a girlfriend back home, was doubting his faith. We don't know what was going on, but on the toughest part of the journey, Mark bailed. And now in his final days, the Apostle Paul is saying, get Mark 
and bring him with you. He's helpful to me in my ministry. It doesn't matter how far you've drifted away, you can come back. You can get back on track. You can finish this race well. And so Paul says here, again, in verses 7 and 8, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith, now there's in store for me the crown of righteousness. Paul is expecting a great reward. Well, this whole series really boils down to this, doesn't it? Do you believe all this stuff? Seriously. Do you believe that life is brief, like a mist that peers and then vanishes? Do you believe in heaven? Do you believe in hell? And here's the kicker question of them all. Is your life lived in light of those realities? You see, here's one of the biggest challenges in all of America right now. Incongruent values. You know what I mean when I say incongruent values? It's where we claim to believe one thing, but our life doesn't really line up with that. Or even worse, it totally contradicts that. And that, I believe, is one of the greatest problems in America today. One of the greatest problems, actually, in the church. Here's an example of what I mean. You talk to somebody and they say, well, I'll tell you right now, the most important thing to me is my health. My mantra is, if you got your health, brother, you got everything. I want you to know right now, nothing matters more to me than my health. Awesome. Then you ask them questions. Well, are you eating really healthy? Oh, no. Well, are you, are you working out? Are you exercising? No, you're never going to see me at a gym. Well, are you, are you getting good amounts of sleep? No, 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 no. But I'll tell you this, nothing matters more to me than my health. You see the incongruent values there? And I know what that feels like, and you do too, when we claim to believe the stuff of the Bible and yet the world is pulling on us, and our lives don't always back that up. So as we close this message in this entire series, let me ask you. Do you believe that life is brief? Well, if you do, are you living intentionally? Are you focused? Are you sacrificing and serving for others? Are you being generous with your resources so you can make a difference? Do you believe in hell? That's the second topic we dealt with. If you do, let me ask you, are you praying for your friends and family who don't know Christ yet? How could we honestly say we love people? I'll tell you right now, I love people. And not Pray for them and seek to hold your sign well as you represent Jesus Christ. How could we not do that if we really believe it? Do you believe in heaven? Do you? But if you do, how is that affecting the way you hold your sign? Is it affecting the way you represent Jesus day by day? 
Is it affecting what you do with your money, with your resources, with your time? God wants us to live with the end in mind. He wants us to live with an eternal perspective. Father, would you help us today to realize that the reality of heaven and hell, the reality of how brief this life is, changes everything. Help us to realize that that means that this life is really a preparation for the next. That we're going to live 99.99999% of our lives somewhere else. So I pray that our values would be congruent. That the way we live, the way we hold our sign, would reflect Jesus beautifully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's continue to worship this amazing, amazing God together. Our ushers are going to come and serve.